0: Welcome to Proverbs, class number 13. My name is Doug Taylor. I'm very glad you could be with us tonight. Um, And we are up to Proverbs chapter 10, verse 29. Proverbs 10, verse 29. And the verse reads, The way of Hashem is a stronghold to the steadfastly sincere, or the innocent, but ruin is it to those who do iniquity. So the way of Hashem is a stronghold to the steadfastly sincere, or the innocent, but ruin is it to those who do iniquity. So, as we've done in prior classes, I'll start out by asking, what are the questions that we might want to tackle around that verse? What isn't clear? What doesn't make sense? What do we need to ask in order to fully understand what that verse is telling us? Any thoughts? The way of Hashem is a stronghold to the innocent, but ruin is it to those who do iniquity. And Pamela, that's Proverbs chapter 10, verse 29. Proverbs 10, verse 29. So I could suggest a couple of questions for us to consider. The verse starts out and says, the way of Hashem. We could ask, well what does that mean? What in fact is the way of Hashem? What exactly does that mean? And we could also ask, how is the way of Hashem a stronghold to the innocent? Or to the steadfastly sincere, and then with regard to the second half, we could ask, "Why is the way of Hashem ruin to those who do iniquity?" And actually, now that I look at the uh, look at the verse, and let me look at one other translation here. Because it says ruin is it to those who do iniquity? So it may not be. um, We'll have to kind of look ahead here, and see whether it's the way of Hashem, is ruin to those who do iniquity, or whether it's the iniquity that is ruin to them. And Naomi, a very good question, very good question. What is the way of Hashem? People talk about, you know, the way of God, the path of God, the will of God, And and it sounds great. You know, it sounds wonderful, and and if we were in a like-minded group of people, we could all easily nod our head and say, "Mm mm-hmm, and yet we might not ask the question, well, what does that really mean on a practical day-to-day basis when I get up and have to go to work and take care of things and, uh, you know, tend to the day-to-day practicalities of life, what, in fact, does it mean to, uh, to walk, say, in the way of Hashem? Okay. And Naomi, let me pause because it looks like you're asking a question. Since our way is already there, sincere and upright. Okay. All right. So one possibility is the way of Hashem could be to walk sincerely and uprightly. Okay. And Pamela, looks like you're about to add something here. and you said I've not yet come to ruins so I must be in it well you mean you must be in the way of Hashem since you haven't come to ruin uh, I'll, I'll assume that's what you mean unless you tell me otherwise okay good thank you well let me suggest a possible approach I want to suggest that the way of Hashem is to use one's mind to analyze understand and live in accordance with the laws and systems that Hashem created. Now that includes the Halakhic system, that's the system of Torah laws, it would include the laws of nature, it would include understanding and living in accordance with God's systems, uh, system of justice, and so forth. In other words we have all these systems around that God created. Some of their physical systems, you know, the laws of nature, I mean you don't want to be in the way of a of a typhoon or a hurricane or go swim out in a riptide uh, as we've discussed because the riptide's going to pull you down unless you happen to be on a special level of God's personal providence uh, the riptide isn't going to really pay attention to whether you're a good guy or a bad guy it's just going to pull you under and that's going to be that so we want to operate in accordance with uh, the laws of nature uh, the system of justice that God created there are systems with regard to people I mean you learn about how to uh, if you have to deal, say, with an angry person, how do you deal with them? How do you work with them? Uh, what kinds of things do you say and not say in, in order to tr- try to create as peaceful an environment uh, as, uh, as possible? Um, so, we, I, I'm suggesting that, that the way of Hashem is very, very practical in nature. And that is to use your mind to analyze, understand, and live in accordance with those laws and systems that God created. Now, Pamela, you mentioned the Halakhic system is hard to come by. I'm assuming, and tell me if I'm wrong, that what you mean there is that you don't find in society that two uh, people are, or that people themselves are generally operating in accordance with the Halakhic system. And and that could be true, uh, but Halakha is uh, Torah law <clears throat> is God's commandments to mankind. So regardless of what everybody else does, I have an obligation to uh, live in accordance with those uh, myself. Um, and Naomi, you said the application of mind correctly and wisely. Absolutely. Uh, so we have to know and understand how to analyze um, a, uh, a situation and do it accurately, because if we don't, you know we will make mistakes just like if i analyze a mathematical problem and i do the analysis wrong i'll come up with the wrong answer um pamela you i i see i misunderstood what you were saying you said no just uh, finding where the Halakhic system is yeah the Halakhic system is is part of the torah both written torah and the oral torah uh, and for that we need instructions from the rabbis because Uh, the Jewish people were given the Torah and are the keepers of that and Torah scholarship resides with uh, the Torah scholars uh, who who were Jewish. There are, um, you know, out there Noahide uh, Torah scholars in varying degrees, but I'm not aware of any uh, non-Jewish person who has mastered Torah and Talmud. Uh, I believe the masters of that are all within uh, within the Jewish nation. Um, Shalom, Kathleen, great to have you with us. Um, so we have to go to the rabbis to find out about the halachic system to uh, understand what that's about and uh, learn what those laws are, that's where we get uh, the seven Noahide laws and then the various laws that fall out from that. So. Again, and uh, Kathleen, we are on Proverbs 10, chapter, sorry, chapter 10, verse 29. Uh, So, again, I'll suggest that the way of Hashem is to use one's mind to analyze, understand, and live in accordance with the laws and systems that Hashem created. So, if that were the case, then what would an innocent one be? Well, if someone is innocent, then that suggests that they haven't sinned or they they have not missed the mark, but have instead walked in the ways of Hashem and followed His systems. Okay, And that gets to the other definition, or the other translation of steadfastly sincere. The, The first part of the verse reading, the way of Hashem is a stronghold to the steadfastly sincere or the innocent. Now, if they've walked in the ways of Hashem and followed His systems, that includes Torah law. And it also indicates the person is living in accordance with reality. His mind sees clearly, and he operates uh, in accordance with that reality. So, now we could ask, okay, if that's what the way of Hashem is, why is it a stronghold for him? Why do you think that following that way would be a stronghold for one who does that? Any thoughts? Why would following the systems of Hashem be a stronghold for him? Okay, Pamela, Hashem is safe, yes. And I'd I'd go further to say that if he created reality, then our ability to understand and walk in accordance with that would seem to be the safest uh, opportunity for us to live. And Kathleen, yes, it is a code of ethics, uh, but I'm trying to get to the point of why it would be a stronghold for the one who actually follows that system. It's one thing to do it, but the verse is telling us the way of Hashem is a stronghold. So, I'm trying to, to get to that sense of, well, why would that be a stronghold? And I'm going to suggest that well, let me pause because I see a couple folks typing things in. Ah, Pamela, very interesting uh, uh, metaphor. It's like a path through a minefield. Very good. Uh, very good. Uh, and uh, Naomi leads in a correct way due to the application of the mind-keeping Hashem's laws. Excellent. Uh, I mean, the world is full of opportunities to mess up so to speak. I mean, there are all kinds of mistakes we can make uh, on a daily basis with other people. We could make a mistake of, you know, uh, going out and uh, swimming in the wrong place and uh, we could make the mistake of going out in the sunshine when we haven't conditioned our skin for that at the beginning of the summer and we get a terrible sunburn. All kinds of things and uh, Operating in accordance with reality and with God's systems is uh, sort of the path through the minefield. It is how you avoid uh, making mistakes. So because the innocent person is operating in accordance with that reality, his way is as secure as it can be. And even if events don't go as he planned, well, that too is part of God's system. So the way of Hashem is a stronghold for him. He works out plans and strategies based on the best information that he has at a given point in time, and then he realizes that in fact he has done everything he can do. And then the rest is up to Hashem. So he has has made the the maximum and best effort possible to Deal with life and protect himself and whatever, and he knows that, and so that gives him his sense of security. And he knows that all the rest of it is in the hands of Hashem. When you've done everything you can do, uh, and uh, then uh, you know there are other factors outside of your control, you can take a lot of comfort in that because uh, you've done all that is within your power to do and there's nothing else you can do and events will turn out however they turn out and how they turn out is going to be part of God's system uh, as well So this protects him in the sense that he has nothing to fear except maintaining his fear of Hashem that is his fear of consequences he recognizes consequences plans his life taking consequences into account makes decisions on the basis of consequences, and then he can sleep all at night. Um, The fact that he's operating within the world as God intended a man to operate, that is his stronghold. Uh, That knowledge that he's doing exactly what Hashem wants him to be doing, that is his stronghold. Okay? Any questions on that so far? Okay, so now let's look at the second half. second half is, Ruin is it to those who do iniquity. So why is the way of Hashem ruin to those who do iniquity? Well, as we've discussed before, those who do iniquity are following their emotions, not reality. So their plans will eventually bump up against reality, and reality will overcome them. Thus, the way of Hashem is ruined to those who do evil things, because the way of Hashem is the reality that will eventually swamp them. The reality that they ignore will come back to bite them. They'll experience internal conflicts, so they'll be unhappy even if their plans in the physical world succeed. And we see this all the time. You know, people that that have Uh, uh, you know, perhaps uh, evil plans or plans not in accordance with reality, even if they get what they thought they wanted, it doesn't satisfy them. Um, And if they do that long enough, it's virtually a certainty that their plans in the physical world will eventually fail because, again, they are operating against reality. So I'm suggesting that the verse is talking about what the innocent those who follow the paths of Hashem, can expect from life, and what the wicked can expect. The innocent can expect that following the way of Hashem will be a stronghold for them, while the wicked can expect ruin. Now, this verse could also be taken one step further, and it could be talking about God's personal supervision, God's personal providence, that will affect the innocent. As we talked about in a previous class, if a person is at a certain level, God's personal providence will apply such that events in the physical world will work out to save that person. That is, the events themselves will transpire uh, to help someone. I think we uh, drew the example of You know, if the righteous person is walking in a path in the forest, and at the other end of the forest, here comes a lion down that same path, if the righteous person were at an appropriate level, and God's providence was acting in his life in this manner, then a a deer would suddenly, you know, walk in front of the lion's path, and the lion would go after the deer, and the righteous person would walk through, um, you know, quite safely. You can never, uh, as far as I know know whether something is in fact God's personal providence, because the way that works is generally something that appears to be within the laws of nature. Events just happen to work out correctly. Uh, One of the dangers that we can make is if we see things that work out correctly and then we automatically impose on that the idea, ah, God must be working in my life. Um, We don't know. Uh, And so we always need to be careful and do everything that's Uh, in our power, but when a person is on the appropriate level, then the laws of nature will operate uh, sort of in their favor, so to speak. Um, So the verse could be telling us about that system, where following the ways of Hashem is a stronghold for the innocent because of Hashem's personal providence that will protect them. Okay? Any questions about this verse? And Pamela, I see you. You, know, you mentioned uh, the wicked are stumbling in the minefield with predictable consequences. That's true. Uh, you can you can look sometimes at someone who is following a wicked path, and you can virtually predict uh, what the eventual consequences uh, of that will be. Uh, and uh, so once once you. Start working with the science of consequences, and and learn what happens when people will do things. Then sometimes it's not very difficult to predict uh, what the outcome of a particular situation might be. Okay. Any other questions or comments on that verse? Okay. Uh, let's move on to uh, chapter 10, verse 30. Let me pause, let me, uh Yes, you're absolutely right, mostly, mostly leading to disasters. Uh, the wicked are pretty well set up for disasters. Uh, because they're operating uh, within their emotions and, and outside of reality, um, then uh, that's something that, that eventually uh, causes them to make mistakes. Uh, and the mistakes will uh, can ultimately be very harmful. Uh, megalomania is a, uh, uh, I guess you could say, an affliction like that, where we see that people get so caught up in thinking that they're so full of themselves and think they're so invincible that they start taking greater and greater uh, chances and they make more and more mistakes because they are so convinced they're invincible, uh, and then ultimately their destruction happens. Uh, as we've quoted in in previous classes Hitler was a grand example of that so yes disasters definitely come about ah okay so Pamela you're asking if I read uh, between the the words there what's happening when they appear when the wicked appear to be getting away with things um one of the interesting things about life on this planet is that we very often do not get immediate consequences for our actions. Uh, you've uh, read the term God is slow to anger. Uh, if if we all got the consequences for what we do right away uh, we would find ourselves in great difficulty. Uh, in fact, we'd probably all be uh, perhaps dead. Um, So uh, we have the opportunity to hang on just a moment. Uh, We have the opportunity to spend some time thinking uh, about the consequences of our actions. So God essentially gives us time to work through those and to see, because we don't always get it right away. And if we got the consequences right away, bam, that would probably be the end of us. So, uh, and if you think about certain consequences, there's certain things that you do that could be mistakes, but you won't feel the consequences for some time. Consequences don't come up until later. Uh, if, a, uh, if a young person doesn't study or doesn't learn, uh, you know, they won't necessarily get consequences right away, but by the time they get to be an adult, uh, those consequences will start to to sink in. If a person sits around on a couch all day, you know, and eats uh, jelly-filled donuts and drinks beer um, and watches television, uh, they won't get a lot of immediate consequences for that, but over time they will in terms of their ability uh, to use their brain effectively, you know, and maybe be able to, to think as fast as someone else. Um, their, uh, their health may deteriorate. But a lot of these consequences come on slowly. So we can ask, well, what happens when we see the wicked getting away with things? I'd suggest that's because they're in the same situation. They're doing something, and the consequences don't come upon them right away. Now, it could be argued that this is a blessing from Hashem, Because what it does, it gives us time to hopefully see the errors of our ways and get those fixed. And that's a good thing if you want to get the errors in your life fixed. On the other hand, for someone who is completely determined to live a wicked life, that may give them a while before the consequences of that wicked life catch up with them. So there may be a time period where we watch a wicked person, you know, and it seems like, man, they're just getting away with everything. But in fact, uh, time and circumstances will catch up with them. And so uh, we kind of have to be patient uh, because they're getting essentially, uh, in one sense, the same um, long-term period to recognize the error of their ways as we are. They happen to be choosing to use that time period to just continue in their wicked ways. So I would say that it is a blessing from Hashem uh, that He does that for us. And Pamela, you may be right, uh, Psalm 73 uh, may be be the, the quote I was thinking of there. Any other questions or comments? Pamela, did I answer your question? Okay, good. And you mentioned, thanks, uh, what is happening to Israel is a lesson in faith. Yeah, what is happening to Israel is a complex thing, and I don't pretend to, uh, I, I can't claim uh, to be an expert on that. There are a lot of dynamics going on there, um, but uh, uh, I, I, that would be a whole separate class, I think, for us to get into uh, into what's going on uh, to Israel today and, and what the uh, causes are and, uh, and the consequences of that. So. Okay. Any other comments or questions before we move on? Okay. So we are now up to Proverbs chapter 10, verse 30. And the verse reads, A righteous person shall never falter or not collapse forever. But the wicked shall not dwell in the land. And in this case, uh, in the sense of it is that they've interpreted the word tranquilly in there. The wicked will not shall not dwell tranquilly, uh, which I would interpret almost to be synonymous with peacefully uh, in the land. So a righteous person shall never falter, but the wicked shall not dwell tranquilly in the land. Now, in this case, the Rabbeinu Yonah connects this verse with the last one. Uh, Our our last verse said, The righteous won't falter because Hashem will be their stronghold uh, at the time of uh, their misfortune. The prosperity of the wicked won't last for long, and at the end of their tranquility there will be destruction. So, their life will be spent in constant fear of disaster. So, that's, um, that's the way, the, as I understand it, the Rabbeinu Yona is interpreting uh, this verse. Now, based on the interpretation of the wording um, that the righteous shall not collapse forever, uh, I'd suggest to you that, we see that there is um, no guarantee that the righteous won't have difficulties or challenges. Things don't always go their way, um, but they won't collapse completely. Uh, Referring back to our previous verse, Hashem will be their stronghold uh, in times of difficulty. As an addition to this, Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch says that the righteous man is like a tree even if the branches get blown around the roots uh, are solid and steadfast so despite all the storms of life that men encounter the righteous will remain firm because they're anchored by their strong roots you all know about trees and root systems and you know the deeper the roots the stronger the tree will be able to withstand a storm in the meantime the wicked even though they experience uh, temporary success, and I would say success with quotes around it, they have no peace because they're in constant fear that things may not go their way. So the verse says that they will not dwell in the land. And, and based on our interpretation, dwell means dwell tranquilly, with tranquility. So even though they might be there physically, they won't really be dwelling in the sense that a man was meant to dwell, you know, with peace and tranquility. Uh, be, but because they're operating on the basis of evil, they'll be in constant turmoil, and so they won't be dwelling tranquilly. So we've got a righteous person who will not falter or collapse forever because Hashem is going to be his stronghold, but the wicked even if they have physical success, are not going to dwell tranquilly in the land because they're always in fear of disaster and they will not be able to really enjoy what they have because they're not in line with the true reality uh, uh, as uh, Hashem is sharing with us in the Torah. Does that make sense? And are there any questions on either of these two verses? Let me pause, Pamela. It looks like you're writing something. <laughs> That's a very good question, or a very good point, Pamela. Uh, the wicked are too busy dealing with the opposition. Uh, they, they don't have any real rest. Um, you know, when you're constantly worried about whether somebody else is going to get you or your plans are going to be found out or whether your, your uh, evil plan is going to succeed, you don't have any rest. So even if you have, you know, all the material things you could want, you know, I've got gourmet food, my own chef, and five mansions, and 16 cars, and my own private jet, and whatever physical thing you want to cook up, you're not going to really be able to enjoy it because you don't have that tranquility. You're too, too busy, as you say, dealing with the opposition. Very good point. Okay, any other questions? All right, let's move on. We're up to the end of the chapter, I believe. Proverbs chapter... Nope, one, two more verses. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 31. Chapter 10, verse 31. And the verse reads, The mouth of a righteous one will speak wisdom, but a perverse tongue, or a tongue of the perversities, will be cut off. The mouth of a righteous one will speak wisdom, but a perverse tongue will be cut off. So, you all know what I'm going to ask next. What are the questions? The mouth of a righteous one will speak wisdom, but a perverse tongue will be cut off. And the reason that I generally always ask, uh, or usually ask, what are the questions first, is... Because it's very important that we learn how to ask good questions. Uh, Because, again, as we've discussed before, questions will lead to more questions. And uh, the right question can open up huge new realms of understanding uh, about a particular uh, verse. So, the mouth of a righteous one will speak wisdom, but a perverse tongue will be cut off. What kinds of questions might we ask? Okay, good. Naomi, what does speaking wisdom practically mean? Yeah, when we say, the mouth of a righteous will speak wisdom, what exactly does that mean? Um, in a very practical way. Okay, that's good. And Pamela, let me pause. looks like you're writing something. What we say comes out of the heart. Is that a potential answer to the question that Naomi raised, or is that a question in itself? I'm not quite sure. If you can clarify, that would help. In the meantime, a couple of questions that I might want to raise. Why does the mouth of a righteous one speak wisdom? because that's what the first part says, mouth of rational speak wisdom, and my first question I might ask is, why is that? Second question is, what's a perverse tongue? Uh, And then, the second half says, uh, a perverse tongue will be cut off. Well, what does it mean? How how is it going to be cut off? Is that like a magic thing that happens? Or... uh, what you know? How does that? How does that work? Okay, and Pamela, you've asked, is it how we've programmed ourselves? Okay, uh, that's a good thought. Let's hold that thought. And let me ask one other question: What does one half of the verse have to do with the second? Because the first half talks about what the mouth of the righteous speak, but the second half talks about a tongue being cut off. So what's the comparison of one half? Versus the other half. Okay, and Naomi, let me just hold on for you. Okay, what's perverse tongue and how can it be cut? This is how it is shut. Okay. All right. Good question. Let's see if we can explore that a little bit. First thing I'd like to do is I'd like to read you from a little section from the Judaica Press commentary that is a summary of two commentators on this on the first half of this section. And so that we can get an idea of the mouth of the righteous when speaking wisdom because I thought that the commentators drew a beautiful analogy uh, in this. And this is what it reads, and I'm reading from uh, the book of Proverbs, Judaica Press edition. It says, In this verse, King Solomon teaches us that the righteous and the wicked are opposites. The speech of the righteous is the fruit of wisdom while the speech of the wicked is the opposite of this. In Psalms 1-3 the righteous man is compared to a tree. and The verse reads, and he shall be as a tree planted by rivulets of water which gives out its fruit in its season and its leaf shall not wither. The purpose of the leaf is to protect the fruit from the sun with its shade But the fruit is the primary product of the tree. So is it with the righteous. He has a leaf and a fruit. The leaf is his speech concerning mundane matters, his reproof and his stories. This speech has great use, just as the leaf that protects the fruit has great use. For this reason, the rabbis expounded on this verse And his leaf shall not wither, to mean that the mundane speech of Torah scholars requires study, even the mundane speech. The fruit is his speech in Torah matters and in wisdom. Solomon's verse means that the mouth of the righteous is the fruit of wisdom. The righteous man is so accustomed to speaking Torah and wisdom. That it becomes second nature, as it is the nature of a tree to produce fruit, the primary product of the tree. Okay? That's the commentaries of Rabbeinu Yonah and Rabbeinu Bakya. And I think that beautifully summarizes the first half. The, the mouth of the righteous is so accustomed to speaking wisdom that. It's second nature to him. And so that's to answer our first question, why does he speak it? He speaks wisdom because it is second nature to him to speak wisdom. He's constantly involved in the world of ideas and wisdom and learning. And so what comes out of his mouth is wisdom, which is why I believe they say that, or the scholars said, that um, even that the mundane speech of Torah scholars requires study even like just everyday things, you want to sit and listen to how do they say certain things, and how do they tackle something, and, and what have they said about this or that, because even the mundane speech of those people is at such a high level that you can learn something from it. Most people, just a lot of people, and i probably say most, will just chatter on or talk about things in a very casual and offhanded way. But when you're talking about a true Torah scholar, their mind is so steeped in ideas in the world of reality and the world of wisdom and knowledge that even, you know, seemingly mundane speech is worth listening to and studying to see, gee, how did they deal with that and what are they thinking and how did they approach that and why did they say it this way uh, as opposed to that way. So there's a huge amount uh, that we can learn from that. Okay? Any questions on that part? Okay, so let's look at the second half. What's a perverse tongue? I will suggest that it's one that perverts the truth. In other words, instead of telling over the truth, it twists the truth into something that isn't truth. According to the Matsudis David, uh, another commentator this is one who perverts the truth of the wisdom of Torah into heresy so we're talking about a tongue that takes truth and twists it around and we could also take a broader approach uh, and say that a perverse tongue is anyone who perverts the truth no matter what the subject, whether it's Torah or not Okay. so let's hold that thought and now let's look at the rest of the verse. Because the rest of the verse says that a perverse tongue will be cut off. Now, someone uh, raised the question uh, about uh, practicality. Naomi mentioned that. So, let's ask ourselves the question. If it says a perverse tongue will be cut off. How do we see that operating in real life? And King Solomon is making a statement about real life here. So how do we see that that idea operating in real life? Because that should give us a clue as to what the verse is getting at. And to get us started, let me ask one more question. What happens to someone who constantly perverts the truth? Very good, Pamela. People lose office, okay? So if you have someone in an office, and it could be a public office, it could be, you know, in, in a private corporation, it could be in a public corporation, it could be a nonprofit, it, whatever. Someone constantly perverts the truth, they're probably going to lose that office. And I'll suggest to you this approach. People have to operate in the world. I mean, we all do, every day. Practically, you know, we go to the grocery store we, or, or wherever we, we uh, buy food. Um, we have to deal with other people. Maybe I have to go see a doctor. If so, I might have to deal with the receptionist. Uh, I have to maybe uh, teach my children or uh, work with my children's teachers. or You know, lots of different people I have to engage in. And if I'm in business, i got to engage in business. And in general, I would suggest that people expect you to tell them the truth. Let me take a couple of examples. Let's take uh, the world of business, the world of medicine, and the world of professional sports. So think about what would happen to a person in any of those arenas if they constantly pervert the truth. So let's start with business. A person could pervert the truth one time or maybe several times maybe even more than several and get away with it. But sooner or later he is going to be found out because his lies, his bending of the truth is bound to catch up with him. I mean business operates heavily on trust. People generally trust that other people will do what they say they will do. And a person who violates that trust repeatedly will eventually not be trusted by other people and there will almost certainly come a point where people won't do business with him anymore because he keeps distorting the truth so in that sense his his tongue so to speak will be cut off somebody has said, and I don't know if this is borne out by research or whether they were guessing but I think the principle applies even if the numbers don't something like uh, for every one, if you run a business for every one person uh, that uh, you know tells you that they don't like something, uh, the other uh, people that don't like it are going and telling ten of their friends they don't like you. And so if you run a business that's crooked or you don't follow through, people tell their friends, oh don't go do business with Charlie, man I bought something from him and it broke the second day and then it took me six months to get a refund. Uh, or, you know, things like that. We've all heard them. So, the tongue of that person is eventually going to be cut off. Now, what about medicine? So, a doctor is expected to act and speak truthfully with his patients. But what if he doesn't? Well, he may get away with it for a while, but sooner or later people will figure out what's going on, and again, they won't trust him anymore his twisting of the truth will catch up to him because people generally expect those with whom they deal to act truthfully. And to take the last of of my three examples, professional sports, well, take an umpire or a referee. How long do you think they will last in any professional sport if they twist the truth in their interpretation of goals or fouls or some other aspect of the game? yeah once or twice they might get away with it but forever? No. Sooner or later the public will see what he's doing that he's not calling things truthfully and that's particularly uh, easier to do now because you know practically it seems like every event is filmed and they have instant replay and they can go back and see whether the umpires are making good calls or not good calls and if somebody were making bad calls you know, on a regular basis, uh, pretty soon, they'll kick him out of his position. And so, again, his tongue will be cut off. So, we see that this operates in the real world. The mouth of the righteous will produce wisdom, but a perverse tongue will eventually be cut off. Okay? Does this make sense, and are there any questions on this verse? Okay, I think we've got time for one more. Well, let's wrap up the chapter. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 32. The lips of a righteous one know how to please or appease, but the mouth of the wicked knows perversities or how to distort. The lips of a righteous one know how to please or appease, but the mouth of the wicked knows perversities or how to distort. So, again, what are the questions? What are the questions before us? Ah, Pamela, very good. Okay. Who are we trying to appease here? Yeah, if the righteous uh, lips of a righteous know how to appease someone, who is it that we're trying to appease? Okay. So, and I'd add to that, what is what does appease mean or what does how to please mean? And what's the comparison? of the first half with the second half because the first half says righteous know how to please second half is wicked know how to distort well those don't seem like they're exactly opposites and what is it that the wicked are distorting Okay. And Naomi I know you were trying to write something that looked like you lost connection but I'm glad you're back so let me pause a minute so you can get your um, questions out here. And Pamela, I'm not sure what that last posting means. Maybe you can expand on that. Ah, okay. Thank you. Uh, You mentioned the art scroll has the word duplicitous. Uh, The mouth of the wicked uh, is duplicitous. Okay. I think that we'll find that all of those will work. Alright, and Naomi, anything you want to add on this? And by the way, for those of you that have more than one person at your computer, and uh, if uh, I keep referring to a single name, that's because only a single name shows up in my dialog box, so if someone else is typing the questions, I apologize that I'm not calling you by your... Uh, uh, your correct name. Okay, so let me suggest that the how to please or appease someone means that a righteous person is very aware of human psychology and how to deal with a difficult situation involving people. When the psychodynamics of a situation gets very touchy, or if a righteous person is dealing with an angry person or a conflict between people, the righteous person knows what to say and how to say it in order to bring about a peaceful resolution and maintain peace in the situation. Okay, so they are familiar with human psychology because a righteous one would not... Please or appease someone unless they had a really good reason to do that. And to appease someone usually means there's some kind of a problem and they're trying to resolve it. And peace is a great value of the Torah. Uh, I mean, there is a time for war and a time for peace, but uh, great is peace. And so the righteous, uh, in many circumstances, will do. Uh, you know everything they can to maintain that. So I'm going to suggest that that gives us a clue that the verse is talking about the righteous one being in a situation involving a difficult situation with people, some kind of a conflict, some kind of an angry person or something, where they can calm the situation and bring about a peaceful resolution to it yes It's like pouring oil on troubled waters if you've ever been in a situation like that and then there's somebody who knows just the right thing to say that diffuses the whole situation and brings about the opportunity for peace that's the kind of thing that i understand versus uh, is talking about um, and uh, naomi you wrote uh, that in your translation it's written the lips of a righteous knows what is acceptable uh, how is that? I think uh, w- we may be interpreting uh, the words a little differently than that translation, or uh, they are using that uh, sense of what is acceptable in the same sense and context that we are, which is uh, w- what's acceptable in order to maintain peace, what's acceptable to say in a certain situation. Uh, let's say that a righteous person. Um, goes before the king. Uh, He will know what is acceptable to say to a king, which is similar to how to please the king or appease the king. In other words, you don't want to get the king upset. Uh, You don't want to do anything that would be disrespectful uh, to the king. Uh, So he will know what's an appropriate thing, what's acceptable to say in a given situation. Uh, Some people think that you know they should always tell what's exactly what's on their mind well i'd suggest that that's not necessarily always a wise choice Uh, there are times when uh, you run into a person uh, for example if a person is really really angry uh, then that's not the time to try to tell them what they're doing wrong Uh, in fact i believe it's ethics of the fathers that indicates you know you leave a person alone in their anger and let them get over it first let some time go by then go back to them and approach them and say okay here's an idea for uh, how to do that so uh, thanks Naomi Uh, so the pleasing and and, uh, is not a pleasing like what we would call brown nosing where a person just says false flattery in order to get on the good side of somebody else This is talking about truly understanding the psychological needs of the other person or the other people involved and skillfully developing uh, words and a message to meet those needs and avoid clashes. Um, It it reminds me of a sign that uh, hung in a Taekwondo dojo where I once trained, and the sign read, The martial artist's highest goal is the peaceful resolution of conflict the righteous use their understanding of human nature to analyze difficult human relations interactions and resolve them. So in this case the WHO is on who's being pleased or appeased is whoever the righteous one is dealing with. Now interestingly the Vilna Gaon applies this specifically to a situation where a righteous person has wronged someone and is going to ask forgiveness. The righteous person knows, and this is kind of, I guess you could say, a subset of the approach that we're taking. The righteous person, in that case, knows how to appease the person. He regrets what he did. He's able to apologize so sincerely uh, that he's forgiven immediately. By contrast, the wicked, well, they know how to distort things. That is, their solution to a problem or a conflict is not facilitating peace, but to twist the truth uh, as we discussed in the previous verse, that they don't result in appeasing the other party in a conflict or in resolving conflict between parties because their goal isn't either of those. Their goal is only to further their evil ends. Uh, so they know how to distort things, uh, and that's what we're, the, I understand the verse is referring to when it says perversities, uh, in order to try to further their end. Um uh, So, in the Vildegayon's interpretation, when the wicked person goes to appease someone who is wronged, he'll only speak lies and insincerities. So, while the righteous one knows how to please or appease a difficult person, the wicked knows how to distort the truth, which almost certainly will not achieve a lasting peace or a resolution of the conflict, if there is one. Okay, any questions on that verse? Okay, we'll wrap it up here.